0: Welcome to New Books in Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I will be speaking with W.K. Stratton about his new book, The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah, A Revolution in Hollywood, and the Making of a Legendary Film. The book was published in 2019 by Bloomsbury Publishing. Peckinpah is an important filmmaker who worked as the Hollywood studio system began to break down. The Wild Bunch, released 50 years ago, became an important catalyst for the change and illustrated how directors and writers chose to ignore the old rules related to sex and violence. Kip Stratton's book describes how Peckinpah had to break an informal Hollywood blacklist related to his many personal issues, to create an original vision that is now recognized as one of the greatest films of all time. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kip Stratton. Hi Kip, it's great to talk to you.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm sure you're having a very busy time getting ready for the upcoming release of the book, so I'm glad we had time to talk.
1: Oh yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot going on right now. There's, uh, I've been delighted by the... Uh, level of interest that's being shown by across the country and in fact around the world with this book's release there there are many many people to whom the wild bunch is a significant part of their life at least in terms of uh, their artistic life and what they like to see in terms of movies so um there's a lot going on and it's very gratifying
0: Well, I've hosted this podcast for nearly five years, and my favorite books are always those that are devoted to a specific film or film series. So yours is a great example of this, and um, there are plenty of them out there, and I've interviewed a number of uh, interesting authors, but yours is one that uh, is definitely a cut above many of the ones that, that I've read in the past. But let's start to deal with Sam Peckinpah first, his background. Why is he considered such an important filmmaker, particularly in the period when The Wild Bunch was released?
1: Uh, It's a a funny irony there, in in a way. Uh, Sam Peckinpah went on record as saying that uh, he thought, and I'll clean this up a little bit, he thought that the auteur theory of uh, filmmaking was... Excrement, shall we say, and uh, uh, and the irony there is, of course, he was uh, one of America's great auteur filmmakers. Uh, he uh, the the thing about Peck and Paw that that really matters from a, a film point of view is that starting with uh, Ride the High Country and then ending with Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Peckinpah directed a cycle of films that makes a, a really profound, auteuristic statement, I think. And there are uh, very few filmmakers who have come up in America that, that we can say that about uh, LQ Jones, who was in more films with Paw than any other actor uh, told me once, he said, look at, John Ford's films and he said you know he he maybe directed 200 movies I don't I don't know how many he actually directed and out of that maybe four maybe five are masterpieces he said Peckinpah directed around a dozen films but out of those four or five are maybe masterpieces and so he's he didn't have a great volume of films he directed compared to Ralph Walsh for instance or Howard Hawks, or or Ford, and, and John Huston, going down the line, uh, but he did make these interesting statements in these films that are cohesive, I think, and uh, and enlightening, and also um, just are highly uh, have a high achievement of art, and so that that's why he matters as a director. Now, Peckinpah is also a fascinating personality. And, you know, the, the first um, book published by a New York publisher about uh, Sam Peckinpah uh, was entitled Bloody Sam. And it had very little to do with his uh, uh, artistic achievements and had a great deal to do with uh, the, the stories that were told about his wild behavior and, and so forth. So, uh, there, there is kind of a almost period interest in, in Peckinpah, who had a lot of difficulties as a human being. He was uh, severely alcoholic, of course, and then acting on the advice of his uh, good friend James Coburn in the mid-70s, he tried to use cocaine to curb his alcohol intake. And uh, rather than curbing his alcohol intake, it you know kind of created a monster in some ways. But uh, so there, there, there were all these these parts of him that were outrageous. But he was, as Monty Hellman told me. Uh, a guy who, at his core, was really a sweet guy. It's just so many layers you had to go through to get to the sweet guy part. so that the, those aspects of his personality make him uh, fascinating, and a lot of people are interested in that too. Now, he was a uh, a major director at a time that's come to be called in some quarters, America's second golden age of film, that period that's uh, bracketed more or less by the release of Bonnie and Clyde uh, in 1967, and then uh, um, uh, kind of ended with the um, advent of big budget special effects films. A lot of people would say it ended with the release of Star Wars in what was that, 1976 or 77, somewhere around the okay 77 so about a 10 year period that we had that uh second golden era in which there was there was money not a usually not a great deal invested into in them but there was money available for some really interesting directors and interesting actors interesting screenwriters to pursue uh films that uh otherwise you know would not be made and um a lot of that money dried up after the uh, in the late seventies, but you know, I, I think if you think of "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia," that that ended that kind of cycle of of peck and pause. Um, I think it was Billy Bob Thornton who once said, "You know, if you were sitting around a room, think talking to some people about what you might want to come up with for an idea to make a movie." that's probably not going to be it you know it was it's a pretty far out there picture in terms of what you might think would be appeal at a box office but you could do that during that time and and a lot of people found money to do it made some very interesting films and as i said peck and paul was one of the uh, the great directors from that time period uh, you know along with robert altman and a few other names so so there's a there's a lot about Peck and Paw that's compelling. Um, um, I went into this book thinking, at that point, there had been about three dozen books written about uh, Peck and Paw. Um, I was, uh, when I got started on this, I was thinking, well, guys, is there anything new to explore? Well, I found out there's a whole bunch of of new stuff to explore. And uh, I think that's the appeal of him, too, is he's he's sort of an unfolding bud continuously. We always find out something new or see some new perspective about what he did.
0: Of course, um, I'm, this is actually not the first uh, author I've talked to about a Peckinpah film. Um, a while back, I talked to Paul Sador about his book, Authentic Death and Contentious Afterlife of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the Untold Story of Peck and Paw's Last Western Film. So, believe it or not, I'm not a stranger to hearing his story, uh, Peck and Paw's story. Well, of course,
1: Paul is is a good friend of mine. Uh, we met uh, through this process, and he was extremely supportive of of my writing this book, and um, he he opened many doors for me. And uh, we, like I say, we become uh, friends on a personal level as well. Um, he uh, he's an extremely important um, critic, I think when you look at the books he's published. Uh, you know the thing about criticism, there are people who will disagree with some of what a critic writes. but I think that even if you disagree with some of the assessments, you look back at the thought and the and the writing that that goes into it and and Paul is a true film scholar, uh, both with the book you mentioned, and then also uh, with the uh, the Western films: A Reconsideration, which is you, must reading for anybody who is interested in in Peck and Paul. Both for uh, uh, Paul's scholarly perspectives, but also he he's a good reporter. He he found out things about the Peck and Paul family that he reports in that book uh, that you know. Uh, had not appeared elsewhere. So, um, yeah, he that's in his, his Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid book is something that everybody has to read who's interested in Peck and Paw's films.
0: So what decided, what drew you to want to write about this film? Uh, obviously, it's the 50th anniversary of its release, but um, your introduction talks a little bit, and you and I are close to the same age, except you went the western way and I went other ways in my early film viewing. But Um, what led you to decide this was something you wanted to write about, especially since um, you haven't really written about film before, at least in your books?
1: Uh, That's correct. Um, I I have not written about film in my books. I did uh, take a lot of film courses, though, when I was in college. So, and it's been a a passion of mine, particularly Western films, um, have have been a passion of mine for for all my life. And as you you know, we mentioned you and I are about the same age. I was a kid growing up in a, in a small town in Oklahoma, and um, it, it could be pretty um, oppressive in those small town atmospheres. If you are someone who has a literary bent or, you know, just curious about bigger things in life. And the two uh, avenues of escape for me were the public library and then uh, two um, motion picture venues in my town. one was the the theater in town, the uh, the Melba theater, and then uh, there was a drive-in theater on the outskirts of town, and I saw many, 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 many pictures in there and just got really hooked into film that way so i uh, I saw you know I, w- I was young during that second uh, golden era of Hollywood film, so I saw uh, Many interesting pictures at the Melba Theater in Guthrie, Oklahoma. You know, I, I saw things like Five Easy Pieces and and Monty Hellman's Two Lane Blacktop and and so forth and so forth. Which at the time I just took you know for granted. Oh, we got a lot of films like this that are always going to be around. I didn't realize it was a special period, but I did see uh, Peck and Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch when I was thirteen years old, and it. <laughs> That's a, that's a heck of a film to see when you're that age. And, and particularly in that period of American history where, um, film standards were quite different from what they are now and what you can portray in a film. Uh, this, this, this pushed a lot of boundaries and actually went over a whole lot of boundaries. And so it, it left a, a real memory for me. And then later on, I, um, Thanks to the VHS revolution, which I guess really got got going in the kind of the mid-1980s in a big way, I suddenly was able to see a whole bunch of Sam Peckinpah films, uh, things like The Ballad of Cable Hogue, which I'd never seen before. And um, so I, I developed this real interest in Peckinpah as a filmmaker through that. I also started reading the books about him. And then... Um, I don't know. I finished a book about uh, the former heavyweight champion, uh, boxing champion, Floyd Patterson, and was kind of uh, kicking around different ideas about what I wanted to do next in terms of a book. And something just from the subconscious kept telling me that uh, there was uh, uh, another book to be written about Peckinpah, and I was trying to figure it out. I I wasn't sure what it was. And as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, the woman who cuts my hair is also a Reiki master, and she did this little thing on me, and she said, "You know, there's some really there's some guys dressed like soldiers. They're not like Civil War soldiers, but they're not modern soldiers, and they're really getting shot all up and all of this." And and she said, "You know what that's about?" I thought, "You know," I said, "No, I really don't." I was kind of concerned that she was able to see that in my aura or whatever they do. But uh, then, uh, you know, not long after that, it just clicked. The 50th anniversary of The Wild Bunch was coming up and that uh, there was a kind of mainstream book to be written about that movie. Uh, You know, in addition to the many, many good books of of scholarly uh, work that have been done, Paul Cedar for one, Michael Bliss, others, and i I decided to explore that. And then things just started falling into place. And so that's sort of how it it uh, came about. And it was uh, a great experience in the sense that for this book, I was really able to pour a lot of my passions into it. and um, and it it stands now, you know, uh, <laughs> again, you're you're my age, so maybe you can appreciate this a little bit. Uh, you know, this is the book that now that it's about to be published, I feel like uh, I could uh, die tomorrow and have accomplished something and left it behind. So those are the things that were all at play with me. Um, so that's that, that was the the genesis of, of this. And um, and like I say, it then it be, just became a, a work of a great passion I got um, so many good interviews and so much help from so many people. It was, in that regard, by far the easiest book I've ever written. Anyone I wanted to interview, I was able to interview with the exception of, for whatever reason, Bo Hopkins never returned any of my inquiries. And I was disappointed about that. But But maybe he had a lot going on, and I I had a lot of good material about him I'd found from some other sources, so it wasn't a huge thing. But other than that, everybody I contacted helped me out, even people who had not spoken about the movie maybe ever in some cases or uh, had decided not to talk about it anymore. They wanted to tell me their story one more time. So it was was a great experience uh, all the way around. Now, I did end up having – so much material that it was a challenge to try to figure out what to include and and not include in order to get some kind of narrative line going in the book but it it all came together
0: that's good to hear and i was going to even ask you about that but you've already answered it um (laughs) i um it's like we said before i mean i was 13 in 1969 as well and but for me the movie wasn't The Wild Bunch, it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which came out later that year. Um, And what I found interesting in rewatching or watching uh, The Wild Bunch recently, just to prepare, there are similarities, not in tone obviously, but there are similarities between the two films um, because they were both looking at the concept of Old West characters trying to make one last score before retiring. Was there awareness between Peck and Paw or the studio with the production of Butch Cassidy that was going on at the same time? Uh, absolutely, um,
1: the uh, the Butch Cassidy uh, and Sundance Kid screenplay by William Goldman had had hit Hollywood in the way that I'm not sure any original screenplay ever had before. Uh, there are people to this day who will tell you it's the best screenplay ever written. I, I don't know. I think, uh, I think Peck and Waylon Green did quite a, a, a mad, uh, majestic job with, uh, the wild bunch, but there's certainly Chinatown and any number of others. But, uh, but it, 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 um, uh, which casting the Sundance kid, it, it, it stirred up a lot of interest in Hollywood and it became, uh, you know, on people's lips. And so there was a, an effort on the part of Warner Brothers and producer Phil Feldman to try to, um, to get the Wild Bunch into theaters before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to try to, uh, to cash in, if you will, a little bit on all of the, the interest they thought was being stirred by this whole project. And they were successful in that. I think um, uh, the Wild Bunch came out in June of 69, and I think Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid came out in the early fall, if I remember correctly. So the, they did do that, and uh, you know there was uh, uh, some interest in um, exploiting the name the Wild Bunch because that was one of the names of the Butch Cassidy uh, gang. It was the Hole in the Wall gang, but sometimes called the Wild Bunch. So they, they kind of thought, okay, we can cash in on this too, but let's get it in the theater first in order to do that. So there was very much a, a kind of competition in that regard to try to, uh, for Warner Brothers to, to get their picture out first. And as it turns out, that was, a, you know, a, kind of the last great year for Westerns. Um, uh You know, certainly you had John Wayne's film, uh, True Grit, that came out in 69. Uh, You had uh, Sergio Leone's film, Once Upon a Time in the West, hit America in 1969. Um, There's any number of uh, terrific films, even even Easy Rider, which uh, uh, Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper decided from the beginning was going to be a kind of, of Western with cowboys on motorcycles and they even, you know, the names of the characters are, uh, are Wyatt and Billy from Wyatt Earp and Billy the kid. You know, I don't, I don't know that Fonda's character ended up ever being called Wyatt in the film. Maybe he did, but, um, and if you look carefully, you even see Fonda on his motorcycle boots is wearing some spurs at times, you know, so it's, uh, uh so very much a, a year of Westerns and the, the, the big magnet of them all, of course, was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid, which went on to be the, the top grossing film of the year. So it was 69 ended up being the last great year of the Western.
0: So in watching, I mean, there are obvious differences, like I say, not just uh, for obvious reasons. The tones are completely different. Uh, we only have really one major scene of violence in Butch Cassidy where um, the Wild Bunch is <laughs> quite— um, I mean, it's it's bookended by huge uh, gunfights with depiction of violence that— uh, was obviously unusual even at the time, even though, as you pointed out, it was already after the release of Bonnie and Clyde. But um, I noticed that uh, the film almost had a European tone to it. I guess I'm not sure exactly even how to describe that, but uh, the quick cutting, the slow motion, I mean, it's... You could tell that it, nowadays, I think most people wouldn't have, it wouldn't be obvious to them, but knowing the films of the period, it's clear that it is so different from um, the other movies that were coming out. What kind of uh, influences did Peck and Paw have that might have affected his style?
1: Um, uh, Sam was um, much more influenced by European directors and by Kurosawa. Uh, than he was by, you know, Raul Walsh or, or Howard Hawks or some of the, the great names of American directors. He studied uh, foreign films carefully and, uh, and he went on record more than once saying he thought Kurosawa's Rashomon was the, the greatest movie ever made. He uh, was particularly uh, impressed by Fellini's work. And uh, there there were films um, coming out of the French New Wave that that influenced him, too, and particularly the use of slow motion and and some of the the editing techniques. So and, and you know, he was uh, he appreciated what Sergio Leone was doing with the um, uh, the trilogy with Clint Eastwood. Uh, at that point, Sam had seen um, A Fistful of Dollars, we know, and he listed it as an influence on the film. So he had this, I think, uh, through watching the, the Oni films and through other things, plus his own growth, I think he had this this interest in using some of the uh, uh, the new wave uh, filming techniques and other uh, international films that he watched in, in creating the wild bunch. I, I even see the way some of the shots are set up. I, you know, I even uh, see the influence of some of the, uh, the Mexican film directors and, and including um, El Indio, Emilio Fernandez and, and, and that. So I know Paul watched a lot of international films. And it certainly shows up in the way the Wild Bunch is textured, I think, and in the, the shot selection, and in the editing, in particular. It's uh, you know, it's it is very much a a world film, not necessarily an American Western, and uh, to that extent, it's. Uh, an extraordinary and groundbreaking accomplishment.
0: One of the other, well, obviously, as you said, it was a world film. Most of it was filmed, I mean, it was filmed in Mexico, and a good portion of the film takes place in Mexico. So that's not a real surprise. He clearly um, felt that that was an important aspect of what he was trying to show. Uh, The film has a there's distinct relationship to actual history, uh, and and I've seen that in other things that he's done. Um, for example, in this one, we've got uh, the Mexican Revolution, the uh, the fact that there are Germans in Mexico at this point, and that's something probably most people don't even think about or don't even know about. And this is just before World War One breaks out, and um, or right around the time of World War One. Um, was he known for trying to include actual events or people in his films?
1: Uh, I don't know that he uh, he was so much outside of two films. Uh, the Wild Bunch is one uh, in which he... The characters are all fictionalized, but it is very much drawn from... Uh, from the Mexican Revolution in a in a realistic way, and then of course, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, where he dealt with his take on a on a real life uh, uh, set of circumstances, and and also um, as much as he could, given the uh, the budget he had, the the uh, World War II film he he shot in Yugoslavia that's uh, uh, unfortunately underappreciated uh, in the United States and that's Cross of Iron. I wished a lot more people had seen that movie, but, uh, but you know, uh, something like the getaway or junior Bonner, all, all of that. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm contradicting myself. I guess junior Bonner was almost cinema verite. It was shot in Prescott, Arizona during uh, Prescott frontier days, an actual historic rodeo in the United States. And if you see that there's there's a whole cinema verite element shot during the actual parade of of the, for the rodeo and so forth, so uh, there there are those realistic elements in that movie too. So maybe I'm contradicting myself as I talk myself through this. Um, he um, he was not a director who was interested in fantasy. He, for instance, he turned down. Uh, The opportunity to direct the first Superman movie, which was a huge blockbuster, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, in order to make Cross of Iron. And uh, ultimately, Cross of Iron was an art film and and a very good one. And um, Superman was ultimately very well crafted fluff. I mean, it was a comic book story. And he didn't have much interest in that kind of thing. He wanted to make things um, realistic and um, and and meaningful in
0: some way. So, he, speaking of studios, though, uh, he made the movie for Warner Brothers, and we've ta- we've talked a little bit about this being pretty much the end of the studio system by this point, although it was still sputtering along uh, and you still needed them in many ways for certain, you know, for financing and things. But so he made the movie for Warner brothers. What kind of reaction was he getting from the studio, both during the filming as well as the final cut?
1: Well, um, (laughs) it's, it's, it's a complicated story. Warner brothers had, um, uh, undergone a significant change. It had, uh, Jack Warner had outstayed his time as the uh, mogul in charge of, of the studio and had, you know, gone into some risky financial propositions that he couldn't get himself out of. And so the people that had lent him money uh, told him it was time for him to sell his shares in the studio and let someone else take over. And it was a, uh, a, uh, a company called seven arts that used some money from, um, well, uh, questionable sources, I think. And, um, and took over the, the studio ownership of the studio by buying out Jack Warner's shares. So there was a time, uh, for about a couple of years when, um, the, the studio was owned by Seven Arts and became Warner Brothers Seven Arts. And the head of production, um, a guy named uh, Ken Hyman, was a huge Peck and Paw fan. And he, uh, he basically supported Sam throughout the Wild Bunch, even when uh, Peck and Paw's producer, Phil Feldman uh, had differences with what Peck and Paul was doing with the picture. Uh, it all came back to uh, Hyman in Burbank saying, "No, no, let the big horse run," and he backed Sam all the way. It's the only time I know of where Sam had that kind of backing from a major studio, um, and he was able to get what he wanted. He got the, the cast he wanted. He got the crew he wanted and they gave him plenty of wiggle room in terms of the schedule and the budget in order to get the footage he wanted. And he, uh, it's the only time he sought to shoot something really big, like a, almost some of those scenes are like David lean, like film scenes, you know, there are hundreds of people in them, a lot of horses, uh, massive set. And, um, uh, he was able to do it, and the studio backed him. Um, he had this great relationship with Warner Brothers all the way until 1969, when the film was released. And uh, reacting to exhibitors, who at that time, exhibitors were the, the small town motion picture theater owners and, and companies that owned the chains and all of that. Uh, There was no streaming. There were, you know, no home video of any kind at that time. So these, the exhibitors had huge sway with the studios and they wanted uh, the wild bunch to be shortened so they could get in an extra showing every day. And uh, they did that. And uh, uh, Phil Feldman cut the film without consulting Peck and cut out some scenes that Peckinpah thought were essential to the film, and uh, lessened it. But that kind of ended the romance at that point. By that point, uh, Ken Hyman's father, Elliot, who actually had purchased the studio, uh, had decided to sell it to a conglomerate for a profit, and that seems to have been the plan all along, is to move in, hold it for a couple of years, and sell it for a profit. And so that also ended the the romance of uh, Warner Brothers with Peckinpah. The, uh, the new owners had no interest in continuing a relationship with him. They had other ideas. So... It was good while it lasted, it allowed him to make this magnificent picture, And uh, but it was really the only time he had that kind of support from a major motion picture studio.
0: You talk uh, in the book about him being blacklisted before this, um, not as we talk about the political blacklists that were going on in the 50s and early 60s, but... What were some of the reasons that studios didn't want to work with him going into this film?
1: Well, he um, on the filming of Major Dundee in Mexico, there were it was a uh, disaster from the word go. Um, Sam was still in his thirties at that point and had um, a couple of motion pictures and a lot of TV experience behind him, but he was. He was trying to make an epic uh, with huge stars and it and, uh, plans at one point that this would be a road show. You know, with an intermission and everything, this would, this would be big. And uh, he did not have a lot of experience as a director at that point. And so he made some mistakes. He didn't have the script in, in the shape it should have been in when he, when he started uh, production he made some serious mistakes in terms of choosing locales in which to shoot some of them hundreds of miles apart. And then, you know, this was a huge company with a lot of actors, a lot of crew and a lot of animals. Um, and, and, and so on. And then, uh, at the same time, the studio Columbia was going through its own, um, uh, difficult period. And, uh, Harry Cohn was was dead, uh, new owners were in, and they made a decision that they wanted to uh, change the focus of, of Major Dundee from this roadshow epic to being another Western, just another Western. They could package up and ship out to the U.S. and Europe and return a profit. So the pressure became from uh, Columbia to uh, to change things yet sam was resolute in pursuing his vision as as a um, as a filmmaker and you know in my my mind he's, he's sort of a poet who you know dealt with visual um metaphors as opposed to written ones and uh so this this great conflict developed between the studio and sam over major dundee uh there, the studio was dispatching suits down there to try to intimidate him to make progress. And then the, the producer got so angry at him that uh, he essentially took the film away from him after uh, production had stopped. Sam wasn't involved in the cutting. And the producer uh, began trashing Peck and Paw to other people. I mean, Hollywood especially in those days, and this is still true, it's in this massive city, Los Angeles, but Hollywood is kind of a small town. And, and if you know small town dynamics, it's one of the things is everybody knows everybody else's business. And in the film world, that that's very much true. And if you uh, are a powerful studio head or a studio executive of some sort, and you want to trash somebody's uh, reputation you can do it you can get on your rolodex and start talking to people and so that's really where the this blacklisting started was with the experience on major dundee and then the uh, failure on cincinnati kid and at that point they you know there was this accusation he was trying to shoot unauthorized nude scenes for cincinnati kid and all, all of this and it just the word spread and and no one uh, would would hire him you know they, the word was he's he's difficult he's unreliable he's not a team player so you don't want him in the director's chair and this again was at a time when the studio system was collapsing and a lot of these people were dealing with a lot of pressure from financial backers. they wanted uh, who all of course wanted return on their investments in in the business and in individual pictures. And so it was this this whole rocky situation with the uh, uh, the studios contributed to it too. he was He was seen as not being the kind of guy who could understand what they were dealing with as well. So he went through this period in the mid 60s where no one would hire him to direct. Now, one thing Peck and Paul was very good at always was scripting. He, he learned how to write um, mm-hmm. teleplays first by adapting uh, radio uh, scripts for Gunsmoke into 30 minute TV episodes. And so he, from that foundation, he learned how. To to write scripts very well. In fact, uh, one of the things I discovered in writing my book is that he was uh, Sid Field's mentor. Now, Sid Field wrote the best-selling book screenplay, which is you know has has been a huge influence on on how screenplays are written uh, since its appearance. And but. This whole notion of how a a movie is constructed, Sid Field learned from Sam Peckinpah at a time when Peckinpah was doing writing on the Wild Bunch script. So, very much if if you see a production that was uh, had a connection to uh, Sid Field's books uh, in the the writing of the screenplay, well then it's actually if you go back to Degrees of separation, it all goes back to Peck and Paw and what he was doing on The Wild Bunch. Um, but he was always in demand as a direct, as a writer. And then a TV producer took a chance on him to adapt and then direct a, a 60 minute TV movie, if you will, uh, based on Catherine Ann Porter's short novel Noon Wine. And it was extremely successful won sam some awards it got him a lot of attention and then when the the hyman family took over leadership of warner brothers ken hyman had seen um ride the high country uh sam's great western with randolph scott and joel McCrae, and he knew sam was sort of a Cutting edge kind of guy at a time when they were trying to reach out to baby boomer audiences, and he's kind of edgy. And, and Ken Hyman said, "I think I want to work with this guy," and he brought him into the Warner Brothers fold. But there was that eighteen month to two year period where Peckinpah was sure he would never direct a film again, and he'd have to get by by doing script doctoring and things like that to uh, to survive.
0: It's interesting because one of the things i was going to ask you about and you actually sort of talked about it already um the most current um home video versions of wild bunch identified as being the director's cut and that means different things at different times but you've pretty much explained it uh uh, this was the, the the version that was appearing in the united states was one that was shorter by about I think I just read 10 minutes in order, as you point out, to to be able to show it more often during the daytime. But um, luckily, uh, the complete print was in existence, so it wasn't that difficult to bring it out. Um, So uh, it's probably not the first time or the last that something like that happened.
1: Yeah, in in this case, the complete print, which and, and Sam was fine as it was originally released by Warner Brothers, uh, he objected to the the cuts that were made uh, in order to appease American uh, exhibitors, but the long version, if you will, was the only version that ever played in Europe, and uh, it's also I know a friend of mine saw it while well, he in 1969 he was living in uh, in South America, and that was the version, the long version that. Uh, he saw in South America. So it was around. Um, it never really went away outside of the United States. But but here we had to wait until, uh, gosh, what was it, the early 90s, I guess, before the, the home video version included what was called the director's cut, quote unquote. But it was just really the original released version of it. Right.
0: Besides uh, interviews, which you obviously had many what kind of other sources did you have access to uh were there written sources or 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 records from the making of the film that were available to you for this
1: you know um sam peckinpah uh i i'm not quite sure how this happened exactly peckinpah was you know not a didn't seem like the most organized person in the world you know drinking a lot, he was in all these different romantic relationships, his life was almost always a mess. However, uh, he somehow managed to keep meticulous archives. Um, The Margaret Herrick Library at the Academy, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has dozens and dozens and dozens of boxes of archives related to Peckinpah. Every memo, every letter, uh, it just goes on and on. So I spent a lot of time uh, at, in, in, you know, in, in Beverly Hills at the Herrick Library, uh, looking at all of this material, including the uh, uh, memos related to the Wild Bunch, both before and during and after production, uh, the call sheets, everything is right there. And it, it always seemed to be the supreme irony to me that, uh, uh, given the mess that Peck and Paul was in his personal life, that this magnificent archives exists there at that library. You even find things that just delighted me, like when uh, he went on the Warner Brothers payroll there was immediately a letter from the IRS, uh, telling Warner brothers they were going to impound his salary for so many weeks because of unpaid, uh, back taxes and things like that, you know, and, uh, that, that degree of, uh, of, of detail, which to a writer such as myself, that's just gold. It's just gold. And it's sort of like the Norman Mailer archives at the Harry Ransom center at the university of Texas. Which even includes things like matchbook covers on which Mailer wrote down the names and phone numbers of different waitresses he met in bars. <laughs> They're still in there. So if you're a writer of of the bent of someone like myself, you find uh, you you just these these archives that are that detailed in, in what their holdings include are just absolute gold.
0: One of the good things um, that I have seen in in doing these interviews, since so many of them are built around people researching, um, is the fact that universities and other institutions are, they want to keep these archives now, not even just Hollywood, but I mean, all over the country, there are archives for various filmmakers and films, and the fact that they exist is what's making these books become so interesting because you can literally find incredible amounts of information and and it just definitely helps in understanding the films and the filmmakers better.
1: Well, one, one thing that I uh, wrote about extensively in my book is this amazing contribution made to the wild bunch by uh, Mexican and Mexican American uh people who were working as crew members as actors and, and so forth um, one of the most important people on this production was a guy I, I got to meet over the phone still still living exactly Sam Peck and Pa's age he's so he's in his 90s uh, Chalo Gonzalez who, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, became kind of the production manager once they got to Mexico, because he was the one who knew how to deal with uh, Mexican governmental people, Mexican unions and so forth. Uh, but I um, I kept finding these emails written by Phil Feldman that were crit- critical of Chelo Gonzalez. And, and, uh, I kept thinking, what's this about? What's this about? So then I, I just dug deeper and deeper and, and discovered that uh, there was real resentment on the part of some of the, especially the older white Americans who were in Mexico working on the picture and, and the amount of trust that Peckinpah had given to Chalo Gonzalez to, um, to get things accomplished. But on the other hand, you say, Yeah, I understand why. Charlo Gonzalez did all the groundwork to get the locations. He was the guy who uh, found the contractors to build the bridge that was blown up. He was the guy who even found the, the train used in the, the train robbery scenes. And so it's, uh, uh, well, as I say, I found this information that was uh, really interesting about Mexicans and Mexican Americans in this picture. And I think one of the key things about the Wild Bunch to keep in mind, as far as I know, this was the first major American picture that had a lot of roles in it who, that were people who were supposed to be Mexican, from Mexico. And every actor and actress who appeared in one of those roles was Latino. And in fact, they were all Mexican or Mexican-American, with the exception of Jaime Sanchez, who was Puerto Rican. And that, I think, was a real significant thing about this movie, because if you go back uh, just a year or two earlier, Hollywood was still using white people to play Mexicans in movies. You know, they'd find some guy who was— of italian descent had dark eyes and dark hair and say okay put some makeup on him he could be a mexican but this movie and i think a lot of this has to do with Peck and peckinpah's interest in the authenticity um really had an all latino cast for latino parts and um that's no small thing and i you know i think that uh, it's, it's something Pa deserves credit for.
0: And, of course, um, what's also interesting, and it's related to what you just said, is how much of the film is in Spanish during some of these scenes. You don't get uh, Mexicans speaking broken English very often. It's mostly they're speaking what they would be speaking at the time uh
1: there is there's a, a sequence that lasts about two minutes uh, involving uh, the, the confrontation between uh, Jaime Sanchez's character on health on hell and uh, and uh, his former girlfriend Teresa mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and if you that that scene is all done in Spanish that they, uh, Sonia Amelia played teresa and and Jaime Sanchez were such good actors that, even though it was it was all in Spanish, for people who didn't know any Spanish, you still knew what they were saying to each other. And you still realized the import of that. and and what a great actress she is. Uh, she's still very much alive and, and very active. She made a decision to focus on music instead of acting so she hasn't appeared in films at all, but I interviewed her. I'm I'm the first person to interview her about The Wild Bunch and her experiences in it. But she was so talented. Um, You know, there's that facial expression when that uh, confrontation, she's both sad and angry and ends it with that kind of maniacal laugh. And there's so many different emotions conflicting with each other on her face uh during that that brief sequence that it's just it's extraordinary acting and extraordinary filmmaking i think in that that whole thing but it was it was really lovely uh communicating with her and she she's so proud of her work in that movie um
0: so. well i think there are so many things in that film or so many things to talk about in that film and your book is just Uh, a wealth of information that I hope not only should people read the book, which is obvious, but if you haven't seen The Wild Bunch or if it's been a long time since you've seen it, watch it. I think it's almost a good idea to watch it before you read the book. Just make your own impressions. Get, Get your own ideas of what you think because one of the things I felt was in reading the book then I said, well, yeah, I did see that correctly, or I did understand that correctly or the way that it seemed like it was supposed to be. So, uh, this is a perfect way for, uh, especially like we said this year, the 50th anniversary to, um, to honor what Peckinpah did with this film. So I really appreciate the work you did on this book.
1: Oh, well, well, thank you so much. It, it, it was a, a labor of love and, uh, I'm 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 just happy I had this opportunity to do it
0: well I really appreciate you taking the time and I know like we said before you're going to be quite busy so I hope people get a chance to 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 look and see if if you're even going to be in their area because you're going to a couple of different places a lot of it you live in Austin right and you're going to be appearing down in that area but uh, you are actually going in a couple other locations.
1: Yeah, so far we're, we have about 10 locations. I'm going to be in Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, uh, uh, Tucson, uh, Austin, San Antonio. we got something in the works for Houston and Dallas and also Oklahoma City and, and Tulsa. And I, I'm working on something for Denver, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be traveling around a good bit. And, and I'm also going to Norway uh, in, in the spring. Where you know Peck and Paw is highly, highly regarded as a filmmaker in Europe, and I've been asked to speak at the University of Bergen. So about about Peck and Paw and the Wild Bunch. So I'll even be crossing the pond.
0: Sounds great. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, I really, really enjoyed our conversation and about a really great film that deserves its constant acclaim.
1: Well, thank you. This has been wonderful, and again, thanks for having me.
0: My great thanks to Kip Stratton for his time. Given its golden anniversary, you will likely hear quite a bit about The Wild Bunch in 2019, and I hope you read this book to learn how it came about. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.